0: Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information, security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray. This week's show is brought to you by Red Canary and uh, Red Canary's Adam Machinshi and Brian Donahue will be along in this week's sponsor interview to talk about Atomic Red Team, the open source uh, adversary emulation framework that uh, Red Canary helps to maintain. Uh, that's a really interesting interview actually, so do stick around for that one. Now, of course, Adam Boileau isn't with us today. He was supposed to be traveling to B-Sides Cheltenham, but unfortunately he has COVID, so he is not going anywhere. Uh, And uh, yeah, obviously he is sick, so he can't be with us today. Adam, if you're listening, get well soon, my friend. Uh, But yes, his colleague, Mark Piper, is filling in for him today. And uh, so yeah, we'll just get straight into the news now with Mark Piper. And pipes, the first story we're going to talk about this week is a hacker claims to have stolen the personal details of one billion uh, Chinese citizens from the Shanghai police. And they're now like selling that data on Telegram or whatever, which is, you know, this is the big data breach in history
1: yeah that's correct a uh, user by the name of china dan uh, within the last week appeared on the breach forums offering up 23 terabytes of um, data so a billion records from the shanghai national police um which included names address birthplaces national ids phone numbers you know all, all of the things you'd, you'd sort of expect from a a law enforcement database in the chinese um region of Shanghai. However, there's not much else that's really understood at this stage. So it, it feels like it's legit and it feels like there's been some verification of the data. But beyond that, there's very little known other than it, it has magically appeared on a hacker forum.
0: Yeah, so it has been verified uh, by media outlets. And let's keep in mind, too, that trying to fabricate a data set of this size, like, good luck, right? That falls over very, very quickly. So it has been verified. And the other thing that confirms this, of course, is that China is now censoring people from, like, discussing it, which, I mean, if that's not confirmation, I don't know what is, right?
1: Yeah, I completely agree. And it's one of those ones where whenever I look at these ones, I always wonder – What's the long tail on this right like will anyone buy that data? I assume so two hundred thousand dollars seems pretty reasonable for a billion database of a billion records but um, yeah I mean the options on what people could do with this data is um, pretty varied um, and is, is quite a big hit. Um,
0: well I I imagine if the you know a country like the United States wanted to use this data in the same way that uh, China uses the data that it's stolen from all of those health insurance companies right It's just good background. Stuff where, if they manage to obtain information from the equivalent of China's OPM, you know, they can cross reference it against this stuff. So it will be useful. Uh, to intelligence agencies, Um, but it's just kind of embarrassing, right? Because the rumour is that this was stolen out of some unsecured elastic somewhere or a Mongo or whatever, and, you know, word, word is that once you start scanning the Chinese internet from behind the Great Firewall, you tend to see a lot of this sort of stuff just sitting around. So it is entirely plausible that this was just like a total derp leak.
1: Yeah, I don't, honestly, I wonder who's footing the bandwidth bill for the 23 terabytes, right? Like it's um, not an insignificant amount of data to, to walk out the door. Yeah,
0: but that 200K, man, they're just trying to get their money back on compute and bandwidth, right? <laughs> Uh, staying with China, and there was a great report from uh, the Financial Times, which has been uh, reposted on Ars Technica, uh, thankfully, because they don't pay wallet. But uh, it looks like uh, APT40, uh, the Chinese espionage crew, actually stood up a front company and was recruiting Chinese students to work as translators. It's, you know, so that they could uh, translate stolen material. It is interesting this because, as this story points out, a lot of those students, the reason they were learning uh, the English language is so that they could one day work abroad. Which obviously, working for this front company would um, would probably be an impediment to them doing that in the future.
1: An impediment indeed. And I have to admit, when I read this article, I wasn't that surprised. If you think of, you know, the terabytes a day being stolen via various, you know, advanced persistent threats based out of China, that data is going somewhere and it's going for a reason. And at some point, you know, if you look at it, the the APT parts, the tip of the iceberg, like the rest of the intelligence apparatus has to try to make sense of that data. So going mining in that data and and working through it really does make sense. And it got me thinking, it's got to be the same in the Western intelligence, right? Um, Areas where it's kind of like, you know, the skills of language are just as powerful as, as you know the other intelligence skills um, analytic skills that are required to make sense of the data that's being being analysed, right? So
0: absolutely. I mean I think uh, lack of Arabic language skills was a big problem for the from the for the United States intelligence community in the wake of in the wake of nine eleven like they hit some hard limits there. I guess what's different in this case is China tends to be a lot less selective about what it steals, so they're going to need to scale up uh, more. Than, uh, than Western organizations. And I also find it interesting too that this sort of using a, a cutout uh, company to recruit students, it's not really the sort of thing you're going to see Western agencies do because they tend to be a, a lot more sort of cautious and, and treat this stuff as uh, very sober, grave work. Uh, so, it, I, I mean, I think in that sense, that's what I found interesting about this. And I believe Tom Uran is going is to do a bit of a deep dive uh, on this for our newsletter tomorrow.
1: Yeah, and I mean, if we just go a throwback to the, the previous article we were just working through, right? It's like someone else is going to have to do the work the other way on that 1 billion um, Chinese individuals as well. So.
0: Well, I think that's just a good reference, right? I think that's what, I mean, you you can't tell me that one's not already uh, sitting on some nice shiny hardware at Fort Meade, know. Right? <laughs> like that one has been ingested into about 10 different um, programs, you would think. Now, what else have we got here? Yes, staying with China and apparently uh, there is work underway. Ten Chinese entities have come together uh, and the idea is they're going to create an open source uh, community called OpenKylon and uh, they're going to be working on a domestic operating system. Now, we've seen various efforts from various countries to do something similar in the past. um, You know, Red Star Linux from North Korea uh, comes to mind. And I think uh, that's led to some commentators uh, being a little bit sort of dismissive of these types of efforts, right? China, is, China now is not China of 20 years ago. I think if they, if they really commit to this, they're going to wind up coming up with something quite good. We've seen also that they have, uh, uh, ex- they're expending a lot of effort into creating a very secure mobile operating system uh, as well. So uh, what's your general sense here about whether or not China can sort of catch up in having a domestically produced operating system that that can displace Windows, because that's what this is about.
1: Uh, I think if you look at the track record of whatever lands in the five to ten year plans for China, when they put their their mind to it and they put their money on it, then yeah, absolutely, they they succeed. And, and while it didn't really cover it in the article, like the feeling I get is there's an investment here, right? Like some of the some of the ten organizations that have signed up that, that isn't going to be, I guess a part-time effort so if they're serious about it and if they're throwing resource and money at it and they're encouraging open source contributions to it combined with you know the open source software that's available globally um i think they have a pretty real shot at at coming up with something that you know will do the job because i mean if you think of the common use case of an operating system nowadays so much of the time it is to load a browser to access web applications
0: this is this is exactly what I was going to say, which is developing an operating system these days. To a degree, the scope is so much better understood because so much of it revolves around sort of cloud and browser use cases, right? Yeah,
1: and we know, like you know, there's been significant developments um, in region within China on like you know their cloud services and Google alternatives, Microsoft alternatives for the cloud services. So this feels like a um, a natural next step and I, th- I think they have a good shot of turning the market especially like you know given the fact that this is backed by the government they have a really good shot of in various regions over time to starting to mandate it right you can start at the schools you can say you know schools uh, have to use this mandate yeah, we operating need operating
0: system. system experts start training them in that no i get it and they also have the skills base there now because the you know the tech industry in china is thriving
1: yeah, exactly. So I wouldn't, yeah, my, my, my initial knee jerk on this was not to compare it to to Red Star or any of the other ones we've heard about um, over the last sort of 10 to 15 years and take it a little bit more seriously. And I mean, and they've got a lot of experience to it now as well, right, where there has been, as you mentioned, the mobile example, but there's been networking equipment examples where, you know, they've had to go out and ground up from scratch or, you know, through Uniquely acquired components. Well, some, of the, some of the earlier stuff, um, they were
0: just uh, <laughs> stealing the operating systems from American companies. But, but yeah, I,
1: I guess my point is this: this isn't um, unprecedented for them, right? They have experience here; they've, they've done this work yeah. before. Um, so yeah. I,
0: well, and I, thought, I, I get the feeling they're going to be doubly serious about this now because they're realizing that they're kind of constrained. Look, they're constrained in in uh, what they can do uh, with Taiwan. Because of this, right? I mean, they're looking at the the trouble that Russia is having right now with things like Windows 10 and 11 downloads not happening uh, in Russia due to its invasion of Ukraine. And they're thinking, well you know and this isn't to say that uh you know china is planning to invade uh taiwan for all we know you know their their stated policy is peaceful reunification so i'm not i'm not saying that but what i am saying is they probably want to have options to do things that are going to annoy the west that aren't going to cause them absolute chaos when it comes to technology use
1: yeah i'm 100% right like and just even even from a consistency point of view like say within government agencies or whatever if you're training staff like you know it there feels like there's a lot of benefits to having a consistent operating system and a lot of risks as well right like especially yeah. if it's if it's open source you could be guaranteed that someone else is reading that source right so interesting to know how they handle the security aspect of it
0: well yeah and you know it's going to be a vulnerabilities equities process free fire zone but that's a conversation we've had on the uh, on the show before. Now, mate, uh, uh, a few outlets are reporting uh, this next story we're going to talk about, but I've included in the show notes a link to Catalan's uh, write up of this for us, uh, because he's the only one to, to note a couple of things about it. So the story is Hackeroni, uh, some people call them Hacker One, we call them Hackeroni. Uh, a staff member from Hackeroni was taking bug reports, marking them as like, like informative and then taking the bug information and reporting it themselves so that they could get the bounty. Uh, the person has been caught. They have been fired. What's interesting though, and as I say, Catalan is the only one who's noticed uh, this and reported on it uh, uh, in our in our coverage, is that people were complaining, people were claiming this was happening like three years ago, right? And we're just seeing action taken against someone doing this now. So my question is, I wonder how prevalent this actually is and what the bug bounty platforms can do about this when they've got rogue moderators?
1: Yeah, I had the same question. I mean, what, this, as you say, this has been rumored for a long time, and you know, HackerOne are not alone, and 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 rumors against them about it. And I guess it's it's, it's an interesting question of temptation, right? Um, from an insider threat perspective, I'm surprised this hasn't been in-depth looked at before, and maybe it has and just not publicly. But if you think about it, if I'm a, a triage analyst at one of these bug bounty firms and looking at these reports coming in and I'm looking at these accounts making tens of thousands of dollars a month or more in some instances um, compared to my my day-to-day salary, there's an incentive there. There's a, there's a temptation there that I think a lot of people... Um, would would consider and what was surprising to me was as Catalan points out, right? Like there was the initial skepticism um, when the report came through from the customer as to like how is this not the same report? Yeah, and I do wonder how many times that has occurred and it's been been called a a duplicate or a collision or you know um, and and what's not disclosed in the the um, the report from Chris Evans and the team at Hack One is when the customer challenged their initial dismissal, what did they provide that made it so clear cut that this is at this required full investigation? Because their timeline, which is transparent and that is awesome, but their timeline is really fast, right? Their timeline is we've confirmed this requires investigation. And then they have to go through the process of have we been compromised? Was it an insider threat? Was something else going on? And they work on that really quickly. So um, My guess is an important customer. Oh yeah, definitely an important customer. But
0: um,
1: <laughs> and and to 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 hacker one's credit, right? Like the report they've published is really good, like in the sense of some transparency, and they've clearly done a retrospective, and they've already called out where they're going to improve, you know, some of their internal processes and capabilities to respond to these sort of insider threats. But it does leave a lot more questions than answers. But at the same time, like complete celebration of of how they've handled this one today
0: but you would not want to be the person who works for bug crowd or hacker one tasked with stopping this right because you know ultimately you have to trust your, your the people doing your triage right i mean the only way that you're really going to get around this is with some sort of regular auditing of people's work and that's going to bump up your costs big time
1: yeah and i mean they do they do say the the accused individual the, the insider they managed to correlate payment information and and handles and a few other bits and pieces so obviously the opsec on this one wasn't great but you know what about the one where the opsec is good
0: yeah yeah exactly now uh in the trial of uh people should not be running microsoft exchange let me introduce exhibit 237 pipes
1: yeah um Kapersky's come out with some really awesome work identifying a IIS module backdoor by the name of Session Manager, which, uh, you know, effectively within Microsoft IIS, you can load load modules very similar to Apache or NGINX um, that can intercept sort of anywhere within the request chain or the response chain for um, HTTP requests coming in and out. And based on the back of some work from the Exchange Compromises back in March last year, where there were several of these sort of IS module backdoor modules identified um they went back after the fact and went searching for more effectively to understand like what may Mm. have been missed and they found this particularly interesting one um which they've named session manager which has targeted a large number of entities by loading into the outlook web access IIS, um side of things um, and just hanging out on the internet. So quite a successful place to hide from the sounds of it um, for the actor that was that was leveraging them across the various regions they were targeting. But what I what I did find surprising is this really has become, I guess, uh, a reasonably popular method to hide post-IS compromise. And as previously mentioned, there was a lot when the the exchange compromises went down that were identified at the time. And it's not entirely clear why exactly why this one managed to, to dodge being spotted for so long.
0: Well, that was what occurred to me as well, which is this thing's been around for a while and you've just got to assume compromise at this point with on-prem exchange. And I, I sort of feel like as much as it's no good to sort of shame users and whatever, the time to transition to cloud-based mail was years ago, right? And and if you're still running on-prem Exchange, something bad is going to happen. I mean, you know, this is Adam's been saying this for a long time uh, on the show, and I'm sure you'd agree.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, from from my point of view, right? Like when I look at the likes of on-prem Exchange and I look at the the trends, we're beyond the the memory corruption pale at this point, right? We're very much focused on business logic bugs. I mean, you step under the hood of something like Exchange it's extremely complex and there's a ton of business logic and there's a ton of places for it to go wrong. And when exploitation of those sort of bugs occur, there's a ton of ways that it's not immediately obvious. Um, and, and I think that's, that's the trend we're going to keep seeing over the coming, coming months, if not years.
0: Now this week, it wasn't just someone from Hacker One who got caught with their hands in the cookie jar. A military court in Moscow has arrested Dmitry Demin, a lieutenant colonel of the FSB, uh, because he was apparently stealing cryptocurrency from a hacker. Rot roll.
1: Yeah. Um, they they say in the Samara region, uh, he had run a number of operations and arrests and there was some Bitcoin went missing and he said that he had run the investigation. And when they went and investigated further, they found that he himself had in fact stolen the Bitcoin. Uh, so they arrested him um, and carried him away. And I, I mean,
0: mean we, we saw this with a federal investigator during the uh, Silk Road stuff as well. There was an American investigator who wound up going to prison for stealing Bitcoin. You know, they yeah. just can't, they can't resist.
1: It was the uh, US Secret Service, I believe, back Back in, i um, yeah. say, uh, I don't. Sorry, I don't can't know. remember either. It was yeah, a it was, while ago. it was the U.S. Secret Service. Yep, and he, he same deal. It was he had the the chain of custody for the evidence at the time, I believe. So universal passion, I guess. Yes,
0: yeah, so I think this hacker probably had a bit of a bit of a gripe, and uh, I don't know, maybe knew someone uh, who was in a position to act on this. But yes, very sad for Dmitri Demin. I uh, hope you enjoy prison. What else have we got here? Ah, okay, now we're gonna we're gonna pick this up as a bit of a topic this week. We've seen a bit of a theme over the, the period of the of, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, where Microsoft keeps releasing, frankly, pretty odious reports and commentary. You know, this is all coming out of Brad Smith's office, president of Microsoft. I think the most objectionable line to come out of that office was maybe a month or so ago where they said that the front lines of the Russia-Ukraine conflict ran through Redmond. And, I mean, that offended me. You know, when you're talking about an actual conflict where people are dying, you know, to to, to, to say something like that is just ridiculous. But it gives you a bit of an insight into the self-importance on display at Microsoft and also the, the amount of self-serving crap that they're putting out about how they're defending Ukraine and everything's wonderful because their technology is so good. These reports obviously aren't being written with much input from the actual threat intelligence people, some of whom are veterans of intelligence services and stuff and would know absolutely 100% better than to put this sort of crap on paper. But finally, there's there's a bit of pushback happening uh, against Microsoft, right? Because we got a great piece here from... Uh, CyberScoop. Headline is Cybersecurity Experts Question Microsoft's Ukraine Report. We, we, we did kind of have a go at them back in March when they were saying, oh, you know, look at all these examples of um, integrated operations between DDoS attacks and, and military campaigns. I mean, at the time we sort of said, look, a lot of this is just kind of coincidental. They're still doing it, you know, and the Ukrainians... Obviously, you're invested in supporting them on this, right? So we've got a tweet here from Viktor Zora, who's a Ukrainian official um, who who deals with... uh, you know, cyber stuff. Saying uh, there's more evidence of coordination of kinetic and cyber operations by Russian aggressors because uh, Ukraine's largest private energy company DTEC was cyber attacked simultaneously with shelling of a thermal power plant. Blah 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 blah. Right? And then you'll you'll have Microsoft saying yes, look at all of these, um, look at all of this cyber war sort of stuff. But really, what appears to be happening is Russia has stood up a bunch of fake hacktivist groups. They may or may not be directly controlled by Russian agencies. They are may may or may not even be staffed directly by uh, uh, Russian government operatives, but they're these silly hacktivist groups that DDoS stuff basically as a way to counter the narrative of the Ukraine IT army. So they say, "Look, we have passionate nationalists hacking for us too." And what this results in is pretty widespread uh, DDoS campaigns against Ukrainian targets. And then when a Ukrainian target yeah gets hit coincidentally with a missile, uh, you know, the whole hype cycle just just goes around. Uh, once more pipes you know I've sent you a bunch of information on this that you've had a chance to have a, have a look at I mean are you kind of on board with my description of this situation uh, or, or do you see this a bit differently
1: um, no, I think I'm on board. I mean, my my take when I was reading through the the material and working through, and I, I read through the Microsoft the latest Microsoft report as well. Is as you say, there's a narrative going on, and that narrative really fits quite nicely for some. Um, but one of the things we know is that, like you know, coincidences do happen, and that it's not black and white. Right there, there mm. may be instances where there is coordinated operations occurring, um, and maybe it's one and two, one and three, one and four, one and five, whatever it may be, that doesn't necessarily mean that every instance is coordinated and that it's all like, you know, there's there's a a pin board sitting inside a a Russian building somewhere where they're like lining everything up and and moving the pieces across the board to make sure that it all hits in real time. So, and I think that the nature of, of these sort of conflicts is that there is a degree of chaos as well right so yeah. um how you reach and draw conclusions is really interesting and the other the other point that there's been um, banging around in my mind on this is like who's the audience right so you know as soon as this latest report was dropped brad smith was off to washington dc to go talk to policymakers right and and have the discussions now i don't know what the standard of reporting and attribution and detail is that generally ends up in front of washington DC policymakers, I've, I've never really sat down and been privy to it, but I know what we expect from the researcher side. And if you have a look at the likes of what Thomas Ridd and and, and others are saying is if you're making strong attribution and you're making strong accusations, especially in such a sensitive area, um, have the evidence, have the citations, right? And for me, I went back to the Mandian app one report, right? If we think back to 2013, when Mandian dropped that report, that changed the landscape significantly it changed the dialogue significantly and if you have a look through there is a heavy amount of evidence a heavy amount of citation a heavy amount of attribution and reference material and like you know it's very academically put together and my question would be is you know what what is the effectiveness of the style of reporting that we're seeing at the moment which you know also mate mate
0: i have no doubt that if you go and ask the threat researchers within Microsoft to put out a report on Russia-Ukraine, you're going to get something really good to to read. Yeah. This isn't that. This is just a bunch of really self-serving commentary, essentially, that cherry-picks stuff and throws it together in a way that Ukraine quite likes because they can say, look, you know, our adversary is big and scary and bad, which they are, okay? I'm not meaning to have too much of a go at Ukraine here, just saying that supporting this narrative is in its interests. But you just wonder what on earth, uh, as you quite rightly pointed out what are they actually trying to achieve who is the audience for this and I think you're right I mean I, I do think it's about trying to look good in front of a certain audience that doesn't necessarily have the skill or the the framework to dig deeper
1: yeah and, and one of the big questions would be for me is what comes next right like because if you read the report if you have a look at where we're at now with with the conflict there's been a scene setter here right like and mm. and like you know we've got a beginning not really a middle or an end right? There's, there's a strong accusation that there's coordinated ops going on, that the, the domain has changed. But what does it mean?
0: Well, and to what end would you DDoS a, a site before you put a missile into it? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's not an integrated operation. No. That doesn't make any sense. Anyway, just wanted to bring that up. And, and just one last question on this. Did you find Microsoft's commentary, particularly saying things like the front lines of the war run through Redmond, did you find that as odious as I did? Because that made me stabby.
1: I'll be honest, I missed that back, back in uh, March or whenever I was, and I just hit it for the first time now, and, yeah, it makes me a little bit stabby. It's, uh- yeah, yeah
0: good good glad we're on the same page my dude um, that's wonderful now moving on but staying in the rough region of uh, Russia Ukraine and uh, ghostwriter which is a um, which is an Apt crew and disinformation crew thought to be linked to Belarus some people say it's uh, linked to Russia but I guess with those two countries in concert on so much it's you know, you're kind of splitting hairs to figure out whether or not um, it matters. But uh, they have stood up some hacktivist personas. Everyone's doing hacktivist personas Mm -hmm. lately, Uh, but they've stood up some hacktivist personas uh, and they're running a disinformation campaign in Poland uh, that is using like fabricated documents to try to scare people um, uh, and, 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 you know, suggest that men in Poland are about to be drafted into the military and stuff like that. Uh, What did you make of this one?
1: Um, my takeaway from this one was how good we're getting at spotting and tracking disinformation campaigns. If you'd asked me two mm. years ago if I'd be reading such a detailed report around not only what the campaigns are, how they've been put together and their effectiveness and target audience and, and distribution, I would have said, I, I don't really see it, right? Like, And nowadays mm. it's it's become pretty commonplace. So I think overall with Ghostwriter um, and, and the other similar ones we've seen, um, what's pleasing me the most is how quickly we are tracking them. Right? Um, yeah and, and being able to, to, to cut it off. And I have no doubt in my mind that um, you know if we if we look at these situations where it's popping up like say in Belarus and, and various other areas, if we didn't have the ability to track and enable people to make an informed decision based on that information, it'd be really interesting to know how effective it really the overall effectiveness of it in, in total.
0: I think it's still interesting to, to to ponder the effectiveness of this stuff, even though to you, and me, like Tom made this point on the Seriously Risky Business podcast last week, right? The other podcast that I'm doing at the moment. And, you know, he said disinformation on Ukraine-Russia doesn't work on him because his views, are, uh, and this is what he said, his views are not up for grabs, mm. right? And when you're dealing with someone who's maybe not got great judgment, who sees this stuff and then they say, well, you know, the media, the mainstream media is claiming it's disinformation, but I think it's the truth. And I think that's where we get into trouble a little bit is we expect debunking to work on everyone. And it, and it just doesn't, unfortunately, because there's some people out there who do, yes, display pretty awful judgment.
1: Well, I mean, the, this is, yeah, Ghostwriter's been pretty persistent through this year. And I'd say they're being persistent because they're getting a result.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, the Times of Israel, speaking of hacktivist personas, <laughs> the Times of Israel has a story up. Uh, the defense minister in Israel, uh, Benny Gantz, is ordering uh, the defense ministry's security department to do a leak hunt because someone has been taking a victory lap in the press talking about those attacks against steel plants in Iran. Uh, you know, basically they've, they've got sources, uh, unnamed sources on record saying, yeah, it was us. This is pretty funny that they do a leak hunt on this because, look, I get it that it undermines israel's whole you know ambiguity thing like we don't comment on it or whatever but it's just in this case it's just so blindingly obvious that israel was behind this supposed hacktivist campaign uh making steel mills blow up so it is kind of funny that they're doing a doing a leak hunt uh when someone confirms the obvious right
1: yeah, and I mean, yeah, effectively they're asserting that. Like a couple of TV channels reported on the fact that, you know, one of the Israeli Defence Forces' top staff members um, visited 8200 and, you know, sort of got a, got a full video of the attack and thanked the team and patted them on the back and walked out the door. For that um, thing that they, that they didn't do, yeah. <laughs> for the thing that they didn't do. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it is pretty there's, – there's two things that I just found hilarious about this. The first is, yeah, it isn't a – you know, we're not investigating whether or not we did it. We're not, we're not going to deny that we did it. It's just it's our ambiguity policy is everything when it comes to, like, we need to not confirm or deny these, these sort of activities. And that's at the same time around a point where Israel really has been, I guess, reasonably vocal or, like, you know, reasonably open. Um, there was the New York Times article the other week around the success of their intelligence operations inside Iran at the moment. Right, like yeah. without, they making quite decent headways and disrupting the, I guess, hierarchy of power um, when it comes to intelligence and 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 working through. And it feels like a time where, you know, maybe it is a time. Look, look,
0: yeah, there's a lack of consistency here, and it's funny because internally we had the same conversation, and Tom pointed that out as well. Which is like, why say anything here? Why announce a leak hunt? You know what I mean. If you're trying to be ambiguous, don't say anything. Like, what are they doing? It just it, the whole thing just doesn't quite. It's not quite lining up in the way that these sort of things usually do. So I'm glad you you hit on that as well. Um, the TSA. I don't want to spend too much time on this one, but the TSA in the United States is revising its uh, security uh, compliance guidelines or directives. Uh, for pipeline operators because the first ones were apparently a bit of a mess. Like, they came in for a lot of criticism. Uh, this piece uh, by Jonathan Greig uh, uh, quotes a couple of experts saying, yeah, they were really terrible. So, yeah, they're sort of going back to the drawing board. And I guess just iteratively, these things, I- in a good world, uh, which apparently it is, uh, these things actually do improve over time. And that's good to see because quite often some a government will issue a directive that, Uh, Industry or whatever might just think is stupid and unworkable, and the government digs its heels in and it doesn't change. So at least it's changing, right?
1: Yeah, well, hopefully, right. I don't think they've published the details. I mean, they've said for one of the rules they're going to cut the mandatory reporting time from twelve hours and they move it up to twenty-four hours, which is feels a bit more reasonable. Um, And then, like you know, the rest of it though, be interesting to see because one of the criticisms on the main rule was like you know. I think it was described as acronym soup, right? You need to have your MFA and your Zero Trust Network Access and, you know, all the various other bits and pieces. And, and part of the argument was that's not fit for purpose on a pipeline operation system. And I can't imagine what it would take to put in, you know, ZTNA. and on uh, ICS control system for for gas pipelines, so it'll be interesting to see where they strike the balance because obviously they need some visibility and they want a, a level of of standard to be be rolled out, but at the same time it has to be achievable, right? And that was that was the main criticism.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that was the thing is they were sort of prescriptive, but they were prescriptive with the wrong stuff, which yeah. is, yeah, going to make life pretty tough. Uh, there's a link in this week's show notes if anyone wants more information on that one. Uh, Adam Janovsky at the Record reports that uh, cyber insurance premiums are starting to stabilize, which, look, I guess if cyber insurance is going to survive, it would have to because we've seen just absolutely gargantuan premium increases over the last couple of years. But yeah, it looks like they're rolling over now. Well, they're still growing, but not at the same rate.
1: Yeah, the, the, the growth rate settled down. They're saying that they believe that there's going to be some certainty in market. Um, my immediate thought was what happens on the next SolarWinds or exchange or significant global event?
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, that's uh, what this piece argues uh, sent the, the rates sky high. And it was pretty intense last year, you know. We haven't had quite the pace of um, uh, crazy stuff happening this year. But uh, another one from Jonathan Grieg at The Record, uh, and I've seen a few outlets reporting on this, there was some sort of d- data exposure uh, from the uh, the Justice Department in California it had like a firearms registry and had like an online dashboard with stats and whatever about guns uh, gun ownership but it like they were leaking the home addresses of people with concealed carry permits and stuff and I've seen the the a lot of like uh, Second Amendment types on Twitter losing their minds over this and I, I gotta to say I'm kind of for once I agree with them like California should have done better. you know if you want to convince yeah. gun owners that registrations and things are a good idea, this really undermines that big time.
1: Yeah, and I mean it's 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 a really painful one, right? Because if you go digging into the platform they built, it's actually really awesome, right? In the sense mm. they were opening up a huge amount of law enforcement data, anonymised like statistics that. You know, academics and other industry people can go look at and have some hard data for the debates that need to be have. They made a refresh of the system, they relaunched it, and for whatever reason, it, it from like it's offline at the moment. And from the feels of it, it was a single page application with a bunch of JSON files that you could like you know filter and cut using a graph API or whatever. And somehow the um for the for the concealed. Weapons registry, that data ended up on the public site. They haven't said how. They've pulled the whole thing down, these investigations going on. And the other thing that wasn't entirely clear was how long it was up for. They say less than 24 hours from launch to observation. Um, But But not the
0: point i got to say, with data that's this critical, and we have actually, yep. sadly, this isn't the first time we've discussed the exposure of firearm owners' personal details on this show, right? Like this is just something that has happened enough times that it shouldn't happen again.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So really painfully disappointing that it happened um, and doubly so it is uh, data that's well worth required for a healthy debate that needs to, needs to occur at the moment. Um, mm. So we'll see, see what happens.
0: Now, uh, Anchor chat is the gift that just keeps on giving. This is, of course, the uh, w- what the headline here calls WhatsApp for Gangsters. Uh, This was one of those crime phone services that the French police hacked and then, you know, owned everyone and arrested thousands of people. Like, I I, I seriously do love a good crime phone ring uh, infiltration. It's always just delivers the goods. Um, That was a couple of years ago now. Uh, According to this story by Max Daly and Joseph Cox over at Vice News, uh, police have now arrested something like eight people uh, in warm places uh, who are accused of actually running the service. I think it was the customers who got it <laughs> who got the short end of the stick initially but you know still we're seeing arrests of people involved in actually running this service.
1: Yeah exactly like most of the arrests we saw on the initial activity over the you know from that time two years ago was you know the major players the ones who were running the cocaine rings in Europe and and various other bits and pieces. and in this case what they did was they caught up with a, a guy called Paul K, Paul Krusky who was um, chilling in the Caribbean actually, in the, the Dominican Republic uh, with his wife. Um, and they picked him up slightly early from the sounds of it because he figured out they were watching him. Um, so they they kind of finally just kicked down the door and arrested him and his wife. Um, what was particularly interesting here is this feels like ongoing with other suspects. They say they arrested eight, but you could feel the frustration of Interpol that the French report um, about this arrest had come out before the operation completed. So they've obviously been working on it for quite a bit of time Quite a bit of resourcing yeah. going and trying to try to hunt these people
0: down yeah I mean it's just you know I, I can't wait for the next one you just wonder at what point crooks are going to stop trusting this sort of tech because I mean my favorite one of all time was Anom which was the one that essentially was being operated by the Australian Federal Police that was just gold so funny. Australian Federal Police and FBI, I should say. Um, what have we got? A couple of ransomware incidents here. We don't really need to talk about them. They're just kind of the most notable. Uh, this week, the publishing company Macmillan uh, can't process orders due to a ransomware attack. Uh, and we've got some labor departments and related agencies in multiple states in the United States. Nine states uh, are unable to uh, operate their services due to some sort of uh, cyber incident, which is presumably ransomware. I mean... You know, this is the sort of thing that would have been absolutely massive news five years ago, and now it's just routine. It's sad, isn't
1: it? Yeah, no, and that was that was my take on it as well. I mean, if you look at the the one in the US at the moment, it was a company called Geographic Solutions, based in Volat, Florida. But yeah, they serviced um, like you know a huge amount of states um, for for these payments, and they're currently offline. And I hate to say it, but are we becoming a? I guess the question I asked: Are we becoming a little bit desensitized to the impact? Like, yes, um, we are.
0: Yeah, Yeah, it's become normal, right? Um, Just like all of the fireballs and floods and, you know, (laughs) the world is changing and it's amazing what people get used to, right? Imagine that if you could send that back, that story back in a time machine to like 10 years ago, say 2012, and hackers had taken down a company like that, you know, it would be global news. And now it's just, eh, barely rates.
1: Yeah, it was uh, filed just under security on NBC News.
0: Yeah, that one from Kevin Collier. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what do we got? Martin Matashak at the record has reported that NIST has selected a bunch of uh, the first group of quantum resistant, uh, uh, algorithms, right. For standardization. Uh, the only reason I mention this, this has been in the works for a long time. Uh, but now all of the academics, I'm just hearing about this in Slack now, a lot of the academics in, um, you know, crypto academics are having basically a knife fight over this, which is kind of what you'd expect, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's everything bleeding edge crypto, right? Which is like, the only people who can make sense about it are fighting each other about it. And yeah. But I mean, yeah, I'm I'm sure there is a time back in the day when you know someone was sitting around pointing out that we need RSA and everyone was asking why. Right. Yeah. Like so I guess you just gotta have a little bit of faith that time will move on. And if you look at you know where we are with, with quantum computing, it's it's actually getting reasonably difficult to stay up to pace of the developments that are going on there and the investments going on there. So it does feel like probably, you know, at some point overnight, we'll suddenly be faced with the dilemma of of securing quantum computing and quantum encryption and might as well start somewhere.
0: Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, the best time to switch to quantum resistant algorithms was probably like 10 years ago. But um, uh, there is actually, there are actually some people using sort of pre-standardized um, quantum resistant algorithms as like a second uh, as, a, as like a second encryption layer, just in case, right? Uh, Sanitas do that on some of their gear, which I find pretty interesting. But yeah, anyway, uh, this one I just included because it's funny. Uh, it's a report from Adam Bannister from the Daily Swig. I'll give you the headline. UnRA path traversal floor can lead to RCE in Zimbra. And this is that classic archiver bug where you can control the directory to which your files are extracted. You can override important stuff, get execution. It's just, I, I just can't believe we still see this bug. 'Cause I yeah. mean this still now, this is like a what, thirty year old type of bug?
1: Easily. And I mean the thing I I liked about this though was the vector, right? Like is the classic vector of to analyze the attachment in the email, we need to unpack the attachment from the email, which is means that you can deliver this through email. But um, I have to admit I, I still have a conundrum whenever it comes to, to Zimbra, is I, I don't think I've ever seen it in use in the wild and yet it, it shows up in the all headlines the time. every now and then, yeah. Yeah
0: i got to admit, too, I had a moment with your Kiwi accent there, my friend, because I was wondering who Victor was. Um, but anyway, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, just a fun one here. A Dutch university, uh, Maastricht University uh, in the Netherlands, well, uh, paid a ransom in 2019. Uh, in Bitcoin after being, uh, it was either uh, data theft or or um, or ransomware, one of the two. Uh, th- so they paid a big ransom, but then the cryptocurrency was seized and they're about to get it back and now it's worth a lot more. So they're actually getting a payday out of that. So that's nice.
1: Yeah, and better still, they've um, taken the money because it wasn't allocated. They weren't expecting it and giving it to um, some of their students in need to make sure that they can, can keep keep learning.
0: Woohoo! Uh, so nice that's, a, that's a that's a a bad story with a good end. We like them, and of course we close out the show in the usual way, which is to talk about thefts from like DeFi platforms. There's been one from a platform called Kramer Finance about nine billion bucks gone missing from that one, uh, Mark.
1: Yeah, again keeping with the trend of whenever there is a bridge, wherever you're, you're mm. you know converting one coin to another or one chain to another or contracts and loans and various other smart mechanisms. Uh, they're all software, they have bugs happening in.
0: Yeah. And apparently now, and the last story that we're gonna that we're gonna mention is that uh, the hack of the harmony Uh, crypto service, which again is one of those sort of bridges where you can convert things. Uh, The $100 million hack of that service is now being attributed to North Korea. And they're like washing the ETH through Tornado Cash, which is that uh, on-blockchain kind of uh, money laundering service that Adam and I spoke about either last week or the week before. But yeah, it's it's just what a trash fire, man. It's just amazing. And these are just the ones that I pick to talk about in the show. Like keep in mind listeners that i see all of the headlines they literally get placed into a document for me to go through every day and there's so much of this stuff happening but um yeah north korea north korea 100 mil laundering what do you say
1: yeah i mean it just sounds like they're at this point playing the playbook i mean if you have a look at how that attribution to north korea occurred it's because they're playing the playbook on how they washed all of the other money that they have stolen through all the other platforms so it's funny what you say
0: about playbooks because there was one interesting thing well a few interesting things but one interesting thing that came up in the sponsor interview that's coming up uh shortly is and it's red canary right and they do manage detection and response so they often see red teamers uh uh, they often see red teamers and detect them in their customer networks and i find it funny that the way that they can tell their red teamers and not actual adversaries is because the playbook is more diverse <laughs> for the red teamers because they just go in there and they're trying to do everything, right? Whereas most real APT crews or whatever, they've got like a very limited, strictly defined playbook and that's how you can tell that they're real uh, instead of, you know, red teamer who comes in and throws the kitchen sink at absolutely everything because they need to test multiple things.
1: Yeah, I think that was one of the main takeaways from the Conti leaks, right? Is, is the The, limited the absolute
0: restrictions, yeah. Restrictions, yeah. 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 All right, Mark Piper, thank you so much for filling in for Adam this week. It's always great to have you on the show. It's been a little while. It's been a minute, as they say. And uh, yeah, great to see you. Great to talk to you. And uh, I'm sure we're going to do it again at some point. Thank you. Oh,
1: my pleasure. Thanks, Pat.
0: That was Mark Piper of CyberCX there with a chat about the week's news. Big thanks to him for that. I forgot to mention it last week, but I have pushed another product demo live to our YouTube uh, product demo page. Scott Koufer walked me through Nucleus, which is a platform that ingests and normalizes vulnerability data from different scanners in your environment so that you can do things like assign bugs to people or assign them to teams. Uh, I'll link through to that video in this week's show notes. But yes, it is time for this week's sponsor interview now. And this week's show is brought to you by Red Canary, which is a managed detection and response company. You can feed them telemetry from your environment and they'll give you solid detections that aren't too noisy, false positives, not really such a thing with them. Adam Mashinsky is the Principal Product Manager for MDR at Red Canary, and uh, he's joining us and will also be joined by Brian Donahue, who is Red Canary's Principal Information Security Specialist, and you might remember Brian's name because once upon a time he was actually an InfoSec Journalist at ThreatPost, and uh, a good one too. Anyway, Brian and Adam joined me to talk about Atomic Red Team, an open source adversary emulation tool. It's popular too. Uh, I had a look at the website uh, for Atomic Red Team and it's Slack has something like 4,000 people in it, or 4,000 people have joined it over time. So yeah, it's definitely a thing. Uh, adversary emulation tools are typically used to test detections. They stimulate some suspicious network or host activity to make sure you're going to detect it, right, to make sure you're seeing detections of that behavior. So I started off by asking Adam Machinshi uh, if this is indeed what people are using it for these days, uh, and here's what he had to say, and do stick with this interview too. It's a good one.
2: Generally, I would say that the two primary consumers of adversary emulation software are folks who are trying to validate their defenses and defenders are actually doing what they should be doing, exactly the use case you bring up. And then the other one which is interesting is like pen testing firms and red teaming firms who are just looking to kind of commoditize the thing that they've been doing by hand or with custom stuff for years. And they just want to turn it into a point-and-click operation for their operators so they can have that regular reoccurrence and it's always the same and you can regurgitate it more easily. How does that work time. for
0: a red teamer, though? Do you, like, get to a certain point in a test where you stimulate some activity and just then when they don't detect it, you can say, well, you should have? Is that the idea?
2: Yeah, and, and that that's kind, of, uh, that's kind of the whole shtick, is you have a baseline of the parameters of your given red team engagement, right? Um, especially when you are making the distinction between, like, a like a pen test and an assumed compromise scenario. So particularly in the assumed compromise scenario, that's where adversary emulation shines, right? Where you're not trying to allow a list of a given binary or any of that stuff. You're saying, Hey, we're going to assume we had an O day and they happen here. We're going to fire off our adversary emulation and it's going to run through a bunch of stuff. And nowadays what we're seeing is that's all aligned with miter attack. So you have that common language and you can create all sorts of scorecards and that sort of thing. But ultimately, that again, that baseline of, hey, our red team wanted to run through all of this stuff. This is all adversarial stuff you should absolutely be noticing or blocking or responding to. Did you see it? Yes or no? Did we really respond to it?
0: And are people, in your estimation, getting value out of it these days?
2: That's the tricky bit because now it's a question of the security poverty line, right? I would say, unfortunately, the folks who would benefit the most from actually validating their defenses are probably the folks who maybe can't afford it, right? Uh, And that's really the hard part here because, yeah, you can make sure all the bells and whistles are working, especially if you buy this for your own organization and you're not, you know, having a red team or pen testing firm come do this. But if you have this and you, you know, fire adversary emulation stuff against yourself, but have no idea how to remediate any of the stuff it's able to do or build the alerting you need to catch this stuff well then now what and you're trapped in the now what problem adversary emulation is really good is, is at exposing the stuff you should see but it's not super great at telling you how you'd you need to
0: get it. to see it yeah yeah no that makes sense i mean so i guess what you're saying is it's still a tool for the security one percent right
2: that's i mean traditionally yeah i would say that's spot on because most other folks won't know what to do with its results unless it's at the hands of a, you know, a red teaming firm who use it as a way to automate that side of the show, but then it can also provide the remediation steps as you know, another service or what have you. But yeah, security 1%, I think that hits the nail on the head for most it- folks using adversary emulation.
0: Brian, Brian Donahue is also with us and he wants to say something here.
2: Uh, speaking of the security 1%, so we
3: were at RSA, like whenever RSA was, right? And I was talking to um, one of the maintainers of Atomic Red Team, which is this free adversary emulation library we help maintain. And She was explaining how her security team uses it, and they basically have a set list of these atomic tests that they run, you know, every couple of weeks, and they just look at the output, right? So like we did a change, we did a build change, we run it again, like we detect all the same things, and they also look at what they didn't detect, and they use it to go and build out new detection analytics, right? So like run the same thing over and over again, look at your gaps, go and fill them, but like. Like to get to that level of sophistication, you have to be so organized about security. You have to have such good optics and such good visibility. It's just really tricky to do and have an enormous team of people who can dedicate time to this.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I'm I'm curious to get your perspective on this because I know Red Canary is used by the security 1%, but is that your entire, you know, what proportion of your customer base is the security 1%?
3: Small, I would say, actually, a pretty, pretty small percentage of them are like, really, really top end sophisticated. I, I, I don't know exactly like I, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. But I think most of the people that are customers of us at this point, like we have a bunch of big enterprises, but a lot of it's like mid market folks. Yeah. Um, so like, yeah, it, it's people who want to out who basically just want to outsource their detection uh, and go work on other problems.
0: So, Adam, let me just ask you this because you actually worked in the threat emulation uh, industry before you uh, before you came over to Red Canary, and now you help to maintain this thing called Atomic Red Team. Like, why is it that Red Canary is is um, helping to maintain some open source uh, threat emulation stuff?
2: Yeah, I love that question. Red Canary is kind of an an interesting organization in that there's kind of broadly speaking four departments at Red Canary. There's operations, which is like you know, HR and talent and IT. Then there's product, which is, you know, product and engineering, the stuff that Red Canary builds that people buy. Uh, Then there's sales, you know, marketing, sales, as you would expect. But then there's this fourth department at Red Canary, which is the community team. And the community team doesn't have any sort of revenue goals or anything that's tied to money. It's just do the most good and provide the most impact for the industry. And so there's all this stuff that the community team builds and maintains and provides to the, the world just because it's good mm. and it's not tied to any sort of revenue goals or lead generation or anything like that. And and that Atomic Red team is under the auspices of that.
0: So is the, is the goal with Atomic Red team to try and turn it into something that's maybe more useful to people who aren't in the security 1%?
2: Absolutely. And that's what's cool about it. Atomic Red Team, though it was created by Red Canary and it's maintained under the banner of Red Canary Things, that thing is driven almost entirely by the community. Like Strangers on the internet are the folks who are committing new tests to Atomic Red Team constantly. Um, and it's, it's awesome to see that group of maintainers, I think only one of the Atomic Red Team open source maintainers it works for Red Canary. All the rest are folks out in the industry who just are happy to commit some time and energy to a thing that has value to them. But isn't, isn't
0: the problem though, like still the, so what, right? Like even if you've got some free tooling, you stimulate some stuff that should be observed by your tools. You don't see it like then, then you're still back at the, so what problem, right?
2: Yeah, but the nice thing is, is like, say we go with the standard use case of, hey, you just want to make sure that light that is supposed to blink when bad stuff happens is actually going to blink when bad stuff happens. Atomic Red Team is an open source thing that provides you that. And you don't have to go buy one of these adversary emulation things, even if they're commoditized or not you don't actually have to go purchase a thing. You just have a library of stuff that you could even as simply as it, copy and paste out. Of. So, yeah. so
0: I, I think what you're getting at here is atomic red team can be used for the most basic use case, which is that mic check, which is, is this thing on right?
2: Bingo. Yeah. Which, yeah. Is,
3: which is why they created it to begin with, right? Like the problem that we were running into, we, I wasn't here at the time, but the problem red canary was running into in the early days was like, <laughs> they would be talking to a prospect and they would, you know, get into a proof of concept and the, the prospect would go and you know download malware from VirusTotal, and they would be like, "My antivirus blocked it. What the heck does Red Canary even do?" And like we'd have to do this song and dance where we're like, "Well, you know, what if your antivirus didn't block it?" So they created Atomic Red Team to be the thing where we're like, "Okay, we've gotten past the antivirus, all right?" Like that's assumed so
0: assumed compromise detection, it, right? Yeah, Proof exactly. Of concept, and then yeah. it,
3: but then it took off like, it, and for a long time until. Still to this day, a lot of conferences, like when I'm sitting at a booth and people come up, they're like, oh, you're the Atomic Red Team people. And we have to do this funny dance (laughs) where we're like, yeah, Atomic Red Team's over here. But we sell this other completely unrelated thing called managed detection and response.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, um, before we got recording, Brian, you actually told me something pretty interesting, which is a quarter of what Red Canary actually detects across all of its customers is testing. Um, which you'd hope so, right? Because that's the sort of stuff that you're, you know, d- trying to determine the a- intent of an attacker isn't really something anyone can do, right? You have to just look at their behavior and testers tend to behave like adversaries. So, you know, what what are you seeing among your customers testing wise? Is a lot of it automated, uh, a lot of it scanning, or are you actually seeing a lot of pen tests in red teams and, and snapping them? Because they love that when that what? happens.
3: So yes, we do catch a lot of red teams. We have threat profiles for a lot of the red teams, so we're tracking on their specific TTPs as well. Um, And like we have, are you actually are you actually
0: running like a threat intel team that attributes uh, different red team activity? That's really funny. Yeah, yeah,
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, But like a lot of it is so. So there's a few things. One a lot of the testing activity is very obvious because it's just throwing pasta at the wall, right? Like it's just doing the mic check you were just talking about. It's like all these random disparate techniques that you would never see together in a a real attack. Um, And of course, on top of that, we go back to the customers and we say, hey, we think this is testing, is it testing? And they say, yeah. And there's also a built-in functionality to mark testing when we send them a detection. So we have ways of like, basically ensuring that a thing is a test, um, but, but you still,
0: and here's the frustrating thing. You still have to flag it because otherwise your customers will say, why didn't you catch the test? Right?
3: Yeah. Well, we, but that's why they market as testing and they say, Hey, it's okay. Because then we know like, we don't have to wake you up at three in the morning because of this really yeah. bad thing that seems to be happening. We know that this box is, you know, so-and-so pen tests or red team. Um, and like, we'll send you a detection as normal and you can, you can do with it what you want. Uh, what's interesting to me though is like when I, I was looking through our data um, to see like I so I took all of our data that we use for our threat detection report where we rank and stack MITRE attack techniques by prevalence um, and I filtered one version of that where there's no testing and one where it's only testing and the interesting thing is the testers are are to a large extent are zeroing in on the right techniques they are testing the techniques that we are seeing from adversaries most often. Um, there's a few outliers, and I, I could explain why those outliers exist. Uh, however, on the other side of that, and this is about to get a little bit esoteric, but the detection analytics, so I also ranked like the, the detectors or the detection analytics that Red Canary uses to actually catch these threats. And if you look at the top 10 for testing and the top 10 for actual adversaries, it's like night and day they're wildly different from one another so um they're like it's kind of a funny thing where they are honing in on the, the right things right like the behaviors that they're trying to emulate are, are are the right the things that i would say are the right things but the like ways they're doing it are just a little bit a, a little or a lot different than the way that adversaries can you can you try to actually
0: wild. explain to us the difference between how a red team rolls and a, and a genuine adversary because i'm now i'm curious yeah.
3: Well, honestly, it's not that complicated. A lot of the time, it's just a disparate array of atomic things, right? So it's like account discovery. I'm going to do a little encoded PowerShell. I'm going to do like a little bit of weird application layer protocol stuff. And it's all happening on like the same box. Um, and it just kind of... It's basically someone as,
0: trying to get stuff done as quickly as possible by cycling through as many techniques as they can, whereas real adversary, This is the thing, isn't it? Real adversaries tend to have a, a, a more limited range of TTPs, whereas a red teamer just does everything once they get on a box.
3: Y- yeah, and, and we see a <laughs> ton of, like, trying to dump credentials, which is great, because that's, like, one of the things that adversaries are almost always going to try and do. Um, but, yeah, it's it's really just, like... A, a really disparate array of random things happening in quick succession on a box uh, and like that's great right like you're trying to figure out if you can detect these things so throw out all the things you can do and you know what, i don't it doesn't matter that it's obvious that it's testing right like it, catching the testing is good that that's what you want yeah, to happen, yeah, at yeah, least yeah, in my yeah. opinion
0: but yeah it's that is funny though cuz you just know that it's someone who's overworked they're busy and they're just trying to get it done as quick as possible. So they just throw the kitchen sink at it, right?
3: (laughs) The thing that I find interesting are the techniques that we see in testing that we don't see in real threats, which are things like account discovery. And at the risk of going to hot take town, like my guess on that is that like account discovery is kind of easy to do. So that's something that you might test. It's very noisy. Like it's something that like you can figure out if you've got visibility into pretty easily. And then the other stuff that we see is literally like, I was digging into it over the weekend, and it was just like literally things like, "Oh, uh, Bloodhound does this," or "Oh, Cobalt Strike does this," or "Oh, this is something that happens all the time in Atomic Red Team." So it's literally just like a lot of times the, a byproduct of the tools that are getting used for testing, driving up the the techniques that are showing up in these tests.
0: All right, so I want to bring Adam back in here, and 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 we'll we'll, we'll have to wrap this up because we're kind of running out of time. But I'm guessing the takeaway here is that you know because we're bringing together a few <laughs> concepts here, right? But I'm guessing the takeaway is there's just going to be a handful of things that you want to do emulation for so that you can catch the genuine, uh, the genuine bad stuff, even if you're not part of the security uh, 1%. So Adam, why don't you give us your, your like, top five things that people should actually use Atomic Red Team to emulate for?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And I just want to, as a quick aside, uh, as Brian's describing, like, oh, these are the things that adversary emulation does that threat actors don't do. I'm laughing because I've helped design those playbooks that they are being fed to people, and you're firing these things one right after the other. Like, yeah. literally, count for count, he's describing things that I helped create, so my bad. Um, but anyway, top stuff that folks could use something like Atomic Red Team for, or that you should absolutely be looking at, like... I don't even necessarily need to go top five. Number one, like, especially in, uh, in Windows environments, PowerShell and weird uses of PowerShell. Encoded PowerShell is the classic. Like, it, uh, sysadmins don't use encoded PowerShell, predominantly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, and, it, like, so
0: you emulate that if you don't detect it, figure out a way to do it and then emulate it again.
2: That, exactly. Table stakes and, yep. and, you know, permutations on weird PowerShell. Like, uh, script blocks in PowerShell like this is this is table stake stuff. like there yeah. are things that sysadmins don't tend to do that adversaries really like to do. and if you can't see that stuff, um, absolutely there be some problems. At,
0: yeah, that so that's one. Um, Give us a couple more.
2: Commanding and scripting interpreter is another one, just like weird command line usage. Another one is process injection, right? Process injection. There's some pretty standard mechanisms for how folks can do that, that are pretty well documented. And again, there are table stakes techniques that you don't have to be some sort of process wizard to understand, you could just do it. Um, now are, there, are, there, are there
0: Atomic Red Team forums and groups and things like that where people can go and get you know uh, get acquainted?
2: Absolutely. There's a, in fact, there's a whole Slack channel of just Atomic Red Team stuff where you can chat with the maintainers and have Q&A, and it's all in there. So you know, the plug, AtomicRedTeam.io, it walks you through all this stuff. There's documentation there, links to all the repos, it gets you to the Slack, there's a newsletter, the whole thing. And, and what's nice is is we want this to be turnkey. People should just be able to absorb this stuff, and even in a copy and paste scenario, like, try out, do you notice OS credential dumping as a thing? Well, here's a thing you could copy and paste to see if you'd notice that.
3: I I would add one thing to that, and not, while we're on the sorry to shamelessly plug, but the, the threat detection so the, the Atomic Red team is mapped to mitre attack, and so is the threat detection report. So like if you look at our top ten list of the techniques we observed most often in customer environments, like if I were getting started with Atomic Red Team, I would just look at that list and then go over to Atomic Red Team and be like, "Oh, number one's PowerShell. I'm going to go run PowerShell." Yeah, yeah. Tests. I mean, oh. the, but
0: this is this is why we love MITRE ATT&CK, right? Like that's the that's the yeah. the whole yeah. point. All right, Brian Donahue, Adam Machinshi, thank you so much for joining me to talk through all of that. I think that was really interesting and I think a bunch of the listeners are going to go check out Atomic Red Team because, hey, why not? It's free and it's useful and uh, we love that. So uh, thanks again, guys.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah,
2: thank you.
0: That was Adam Mashenshi and Brian Donahue of Red Canary there. Big thanks to them for that. Big thanks also to Mark Piper for filling in for Adam this week. And that is it for this week's show. I'll be back in a couple of days with an episode of Serious Risky Business with Tommy Wren. Uh, Don't forget that one is published to our other podcast feed. Uh, You can find that one by searching for Risky Business News uh, in your podcatcher. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.